You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Associate Professor Kelly Matthews, a teacher and academic researcher at the University of Queensland's Institute for Teaching and Learning Innovation. Kelly asks, why can't students be more involved in curriculum and assessment decisions? In this episode, we look at students as partners, currently a growing practice in higher education that challenges assumptions about the role of students in learning, teaching and university decision-making. We explore the value of curiosity and asking lots of questions, as well as ideas around student voice, collaboration, empathy and reciprocity. Kelly also reflects on the profound impact of Hurricane Katrina on her personal and professional approach. Here's my conversation with Kelly Matthews. So Kelly, very nice to be chatting again uh, remotely via Zoom video. Yes, it's nice to see you, Mark, on Zoom. So I know that we have worked together in the past with higher ed and uh, I know you're a researcher uh, related to learning and teaching. So what would be great is if you could give us a bit of a background um, into, you know, how did you arrive at, at what you're doing right now? And you can, you can go back, let's go back into, you know, maybe what, what, what were you interested in at school or, you know, what was your undergraduate study? Uh, were you always interested in learning and teaching issues? Yeah, thanks, thanks for asking that, Mark. I am an academic. I do research. I'm a writer, an author. Uh, I'm a teacher. I'm also a parent to two young children. So like many people today, I'm balancing many things in my life and I have multiple roles. Because sometimes I think in the academic world, we just um, ignore the fact that people actually have families because most people work like machines. <laughs> I've started to do that more. I just do that now, especially for um, other female academics to signal that one can have a successful career with children. But one thing you might notice is um, we're in Australia, but I do not have an Australian accent. So I was imported to Australia um, in my mid-20s. So I spent my formative years and definitely my early educational years in the United States, in, in New Orleans and Louisiana. Um, and I would definitely say that my interest in teaching and learning was not resulting from my experiences of, of education. Um, I definitely felt after my education, it was an area I didn't want, want to be a part of. My experiences um, in school, and yeah, just made me feel like I was part of a system. And in feeling like I was part of a, a system, I didn't really felt, feel that I was kind of heard or seen. Um, in school, I spent a lot of time just wondering why I was learning what I was learning in school. So, no, I was not attracted to um, teaching and learning ideas through school. Um, however, at some point um, <laughs> in my undergraduate years, I found I, I definitely enjoyed university learning much more. I could ask questions more freely. 
um, without feeling like I was being judged by, by the teachers in higher education. They seemed to actually welcome um, the critical questions that, that I would ask. Well, I guess one of your critical questions possibly was unspoken because that, that's reasonably significant. The, the why, why are we doing yes. this at high school? You know, in terms of um, questioning. Yes. Why am I learning math? Why do I need to know long division? Why am I learning this version of history? I had many, many questions. Um, I spent some years in a religious school and that definitely also solidified that my questioning was very unwelcomed. Um, but when I, was, I got to university, that was much more embraced. So there was more of an appreciation for the, the kinds of questions that I was asking or just a willingness to hear the questions that student had, students had as a part of the thinking process. Um, but probably the changing, shifting moment for me was actually when I was studying science in New Orleans and I um, applied for an undergraduate research position. So this would be in the early 2000s. And I was very surprised that I got the role because I, I didn't feel like a kind of biomedical science person who should be in, in a laboratory. Um, and the professor asked me a few questions during the interview that I absolutely could not answer. Mark, what is a virus in three words? I was stunned. I mean, like, what's a virus in three words? I'm studying science. I should know this. And I could not answer his question. It still stays with me. Um, if you want to know the answer, his, it was an obligate intracellular parasite. That doesn't always generate such a, a laugh, I would imagine, that kind of. <laughs> but, yeah, I was, I was kind of struggling. I was going to say something like information or uh, like genetic information or like something about uh, it, it's not living but it's just the information for transcoding later or something, you know. but. You've taken some science courses. You've got some language there, Mark, I can see. Well, but <laughs> I do like though, the challenge, though. But. Yeah, it was a good challenge. And I couldn't, so, but because I couldn't answer, I was just thinking there's no way that I've gotten, I've gotten this role, right? Um, but for whatever reason, he um, took me on board as an undergraduate um, research student in his laboratory. We were looking at the relationship between um, neurogenerative diseases and viral interactions. Really fascinating work. So what did, you, what did you, what did you, sorry, oh, no. what did you, um, up until that point, like what were you doing in your regular study that then this, this other thing came along? Like you, did you have the kind of any sort of foundation or enough foundation to kind of, um, you know, set you up or was it yeah, kind of? Yeah, to do this role, sure. Look, I had what all most other students had. I had a couple of years of, of coursework. I had done pretty well in my, my classes. Um, so I had the kind of content knowledge and the kind of experience that you have in universities um, for the role. Um, but the other thing I realized later that he appreciated, it wasn't the content knowledge. Um, it was the fact that I didn't fluster. And I was just like, actually, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and so it was more that kind of willingness um, that Dr. Hill saw something in. Okay, you're willing to learn and you're willing to take feedback and you can hear me correcting you. And you, you're just like, okay, great. You just told me something from your perspective. Um, so I actually think it was um, probably more the kind of interaction and the response to not knowing something and how I handled that, that moment in that, that situation. Um, 
But it was in that experience that really sticks out for me. One, I realized I definitely don't want to be a scientist. And that was a good thing to learn. Um, that was not where my best gifts were going to be. Um, but it was also just, he treated me like a really knowledgeable person. He, he consulted me regularly. Um, he'd give me papers to read and I'd, I'd pick up his spelling errors. And I'd be like, I can't believe that you make spelling errors. I make spelling errors too. And he'd say, that's the easiest thing to fix. I don't, I don't worry about that. So I learned so much from him because he just kind of treated me like another colleague. Um, and so that's but I mean, what really stood out in, in that experience of in that undergraduate research position was just being kind of seen and heard and being a part of the dialogue and the conversations and treated like you have something to contribute here. You're definitely not going to be the best scientist, Kelly, but you have other skills that are actually really important to doing science. Um, so it was through that that just feeling of thinking, this person just really appreciates what I have to contribute. So it's probably um, those experiences that shaped me more than anything and gave me hope that uh, maybe there was something useful I could do in the, the land of kind of teaching and learning and higher education and pedagogy and curriculum. And what that was, was really thinking more deeply about the relationships that you have in those learning environments between the kind of expert and, and the student, what people would say, you know, the novice. And he didn't treat me like I was a novice and he had to tell me things to do. He just trusted me and we worked together. And that was a very rewarding experience. And so was that, were you kind of one of many? Was it like a part of a program or was it a one-off kind of thing? Yes, yeah, so I was um, a part of a program. It was um, a big kind of lab group. And I was definitely able to realize early on that some of the students were like super geniuses, really, really smart undergraduate students. They were going to go on to be amazing scientists or medical doctors. And, and he trusted them to do some really important lab work. Um, and within that, I could also then see my role as I was actually really good at communicating what people were doing and bringing people together and saying, okay, now is the time where we need to be talking about what's sort of going on here. And I was able to synthesize um, the literature and the reading um, in a way that was also productive and useful. So I also could see that we were all contributing different things in our own unique ways. And he treated us all like, of course, you could be doing this. Sure, you're undergraduate students, but you're absolutely capable of you know, helping to run PCRs and doing many other type of experimental things, but also co-authoring papers. So, so was that a uh, was that sort of brought to the table and articulated this idea of say attributes that that you, the group of people, the group of students had, or is it like was it a formalized kind of acknowledgement, or it was just really plain and obvious, or or it wasn't a thing? Yeah, um, we never talked about it. So okay, just, that answers um, the question. Was, I think <laughs> yeah. yes. We never talk. I, I picked it up and then I could see that. Um, and we would, he would have, we would have conversations together about, you know, what was my work and what could I contribute? Um, so we had it in that sense, but we never really sat down and had kind of big conversations about how are we going to work um, mm. or what do we each contribute? It just seemed to work. And part of that's probably because he was able to orchestrate that in ways that just worked without us seeing them the mechanics behind it, if you will. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a bit of a reflective uh, reflection built into that system as such, where you're kind of 
you know, having a conversation on oh, what's working or where do we go now or, you know, this sort of iterative, if that's the word. Process, yeah. And if you think about that as a learning process, it was so different to how even in university experiences, there, you know, the teacher tells you what to do. If you're lucky, they tell you why. Most of the time they don't. And you just go and do it. If you have some kind of issue or problem, you can go ask them about it. Much this environment as a learning environment was so different because we were trying to achieve something together and everybody had a role to play and it was just so different in that sense. So how did it all, how did it all play out? Like, did this happen um, towards the end of your uh, undergraduate study or at the beginning? Or and did it change the course radically of of uh, your your pathway? I guess. Yes. So it happened um, at the end of, of my studies. And when I finished that program, realizing I wasn't going to be a scientist, I actually went into a specialist graduate program to be a science teacher. Um, and so that kind of set a different course. But really, Mark, what changed the, the course of, of my history um, was natural disaster. Hurricane Katrina really just set me on a completely different path that got me to, to Australia but when I came to Australia, I brought that experience of um, what it felt like to really be involved in learning. And so when I came to Australia and um, a university gave me a job working with students, um, I really brought that we're working together mindset. So I did carry a lot with me from, from that experience of undergraduate research um, and a lot from my education program. But I'd definitely say, yeah, Hurricane Katrina just set me on a completely different um, path. <laughs> Was it, was it like a kind of a moment where you, you made a few decisions and then you're out of there or how did it, how did it play out? Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, it was a very complicated um, experience that involved not having any possessions or a home or an address for a period of time. Not really. So very discombobulating. Um, maybe not that different to how many people have felt at the beginning of, of this year with the pandemic. It really yeah. just shakes you a lot. Um, what you think, you know, and the plans you have, you've just had to let them all go. Um, so, yeah, so um, I, the job that I had in New Orleans as a teacher, that was no longer there because there were no schools, because nobody was there, because it was underwater. Um, so it felt like in some ways, once I accepted what was going on and that took a while, um, it was in some ways a sense of liberation, which was I, was I was free from all my worldly possessions and I was also free from the belief that I can plan the future. And I was able to kind of embrace that. As well with some of my friends, that was much more difficult to embrace. Yeah. So it did set me on a different path and with a, a different mindset that, you know, we can actually just do things a lot differently. Plans are just plans, but they can change. Yeah. My sense is that where I am today, I couldn't, I couldn't be where I am without, you know, those early experiences in education and my experiences all the way from kindergarten. Um, it's amazing how as you get older and then you reflect back, you just see so many ways that little incidences, little situations have kind of shaped where you end up in life. And I think we probably all have moments and experiences like that when we, we kind of see that. So the work that I do today um, absolutely has been shaped by so many experiences, um, which gives you a different sense of kind of purpose and motivation and a sense of um, just direction. 
which is nice too. Although I have no idea where I'm going in the future, um, I know right now I am where I am because of just, yeah, so many experiences and lots of people along the way and natural disaster. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Uh, when I when I came to Australia, yeah, I definitely did not feel like the same person I was um, when I left New Orleans. And I think one of the things that I brought with me was a sense of not only can I not plan and know the future, there's just a lot of things I don't know. So I came with a real keenness to learn. And even though I was in another English-speaking country, I quickly realized that I was missing jokes. I didn't get the sense of humor. Um, Someone once told me, oh, it's on the bench, go look. And I said, no, there's no bench in this room. And I realized I meant the kitchen counter, but I think of a bench as a seat. So there's all these ways of kind of miscommunication that kept happening that made me realize I just need to ask a lot of questions. I can't assume I know things. And so when I started working in the university, they were particularly interested in the knowledge base I had about working with um, students who were underserved or students from equity-seeking backgrounds, because that's a lot of the work that I did in New Orleans. And they wanted me to work with low socioeconomic students, as they called them then, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students to support them in their transition to university. What I brought with me in that sense was a very keen awareness that I don't know anything about the lives of of these people and I need to learn. How am I supposed to work with and support these students if I I don't know who they are? Um, And so I started having these conversations and I was just really curious and I was really open to to learning. Some of my colleagues at UQ were a bit uncomfortable with my approach and I think what, part you're prying of it, kind of thing, prying into their lives or something? or No, it's more like, well, don't you know what to do? Why do you have to ask them for help to do your oh, job? Oh, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, yes. that resonates very strongly <laughs> with, with my own professional, uh, you know, experience. They, they're, they're just as something as simple as asking questions, which is kind of you're exchanging information. But, you know, sometimes that's misinterpreted as, well, doesn't she know? Right. What, what do you... You, you're not going to be able to do this job because you're asking the wrong questions. You shouldn't even be asking these questions. So I, it was interesting to deal with that experience too. Um, but one of the things that happened within that of me just being really curious and, and getting to know the students I was meant to be supporting, um, they had incredible amount of knowledge about what needed to be done and how it could be done better. So I actually started working with the students. I got a grant to pay the students to say, actually, we should be co-designing whatever we're doing together here. Um, we need to create a community. And I, you're, we, you know, I need you all to be more of a part of this because you actually have such a better sense. So as knowledge holders, what they could bring was so invaluable. Yet the mindset at the time was that, no, we needed experts and expert counselors to guide and nurture these students and to direct them. And instead, I said, actually, I'm going to let them run the program. I'm just going to walk alongside of them. And we had this really great experience. The program was um, successful in ways it had not been before. And in addition to that, we flipped. We worked together to really flip the mindset that students from low socioeconomic backgrounds weren't as smart and that their problems were academic. Now, 
15 years later in Australia, we all, we all know this. And there were lots of people back then who knew it. But there were lots of people who held that view, this kind of deficit view that these students, in particular equity-seeking students, weren't academically as able. Um, so I pulled some data to demonstrate that the data doesn't actually suggest that that's, that's true either. And how is it that we can think about what the university needs to change instead of thinking about what the students need to change to fit into the university? So that was really the beginning, I think, of me bringing that sense of curiosity and letting go of the idea that there's some plan in some right way. Hurricane Katrina taught me there's, <laughs> there are no plans um, and that people can be miraculously resilient um, in the face of, in that case, a man-made disaster following a hurricane. Um, so I really brought that, that with me. And the students working with them was just so um, rewarding. And I learned so much from them, even about my own assumptions that I had held, even though I think of myself as a very curious and open person. Um, so that experience stayed with me. And then I went and started um, working in the science faculty and doing more curriculum work. Because instead of working on the students and fixing them, I could see how the curriculum and our pedagogies, the ways that we were teaching and how students saw themselves in the curriculum was actually a bigger structural issue that needed to be worked on than just trying to kind of change or help students. So I think it's that mindset that I brought with me, Mark, that really led into some of the key work that I, I do now that I'm most proud of and that I enjoy. And that is that reframing and challenging the idea that students aren't knowledge holders that students don't know things and we have to help them and we need to do things to them and for them instead of actually doing things with them. That by just being in dialogue with students and asking questions and wanting to hear the answers um, can really inform and shape ways that we can be enhancing learning and teaching and assessment and student life. And if we're willing to make that mind shift, you know, that kind of change of, yeah, well, this is what a student is and this is what a staff is. Um, I think just um, we can really enrich learning. So those types of interactions that I got to have as an undergraduate research student of being heard and being seen and seeing you can make a contribution, um, that's so powerful in learning. So kind of bringing that into higher education has definitely been my focus for the last kind of five or six years but it really did start when I came to Australia and, and what I brought with me in my thinking from the United States. And surviving so a, a hurricane helps. It really makes you a stronger <laughs> person. So was it, it sounds like it was the kind of like the essence or the, the kind of the general, general kind of vibe of what you were doing in your own undergraduate that had been kind of reapplied or kind of, it wasn't like a, a direct kind of translation and it, you know putting it into a new territory it was kind of like the essence of it but for local conditions or that type of thing or you know yeah, it definitely wasn't a direct transplant in some ways it was just um i mean to start it's going to sound very abstract but it was just a kind of ethos or a way of thinking and challenging and questioning to say why can't students be more actively involved in curriculum decisions um, in the way that yeah. Dr. Hill made me feel kind of seen and heard, and I, you know, suggest we change something. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Okay, we're going to do it this way now. So, so these questions that you were asking the students were like, what, what were some popular or typical questions that that kept coming up 
we don't need all yeah. the detail of the answer. But no, the, no. So the kind of questions that first just coming from a place of curiosity would be like, um, what is it that you're learning? How are you learning it? What's making you really excited right now about what it is that that you're learning? Who are you connecting with? Um, what, yeah, how within your own classes, how do you get to shape what's happening? How do you just feel? How do you feel when you interact? Um, what's your assessment like? So they're more just kind of questions that open up the space for students' own kind of just stories to, to come through. And through that, you know, more, you just end up in a conversation. It's not even like an interview. I don't even feel like I'm asking questions. We're just talking. We're like, you know, a couple of colleagues sitting around having a conversation about life. Mm, yeah, like now. Yeah, like now. So it doesn't even feel like um, interviews. I didn't have a, a set of questions. Um, I just, I was kind of curious. It was, it ends up being kind of a sharing of experiences um, and, and getting to know people. And then from there, it's like, well, what do you think we could be doing better? Um, what kind of questions should we be asking students in, in surveys? Why can't students be a part of picking their own assessment topics? Um, why can't teachers explain to you why you're learning what you're learning? Can you ask those questions? So this sounds jolly good. Uh, however, I, I noticed a, a couple of minutes ago you used that phrase "pulled the data." You know, I've kind of that's a very popular, you know, phrase. Mm -hmm. Why was that necessary to to kind of get the? What does that mean, yes. for example, for, for for a start? And then why was it necessary? Because why couldn't you have just had these conversations with your colleagues? You know, it's a collegial sharing, and then surely they would have um, it would have resonated, and you get something moving, or or not. Could you tell us almost like the almost like the formal <laughs> structures that are occurring, and versus the it's a, it's pleasant having conversations with students, and you know I'm sure you yeah, have lots of insights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and what could they check? It's all, or it's just talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah. What, what else is going on there in terms well, of systems? <laughs> so to think of, um, one of the things again, I'm going to go back to um, my own time in in schooling. When I realized the rules of the game, I got a lot better as a student. I was not a good student to start. And then I realized what I was supposed to do. No one told me I could just observe and I saw that. Um, having worked in universities in the United States and then coming to the university I came to in Australia, which was a research intensive university, it was quite clear to me very quickly that evidence mattered and data had power. Um, right or wrong, more so than, you know, getting some people to sit around and have a conversation. Um, and part of it, too, was my curiosity. I did want to know on a larger scale, was it true that students from low socioeconomic backgrounds at this particular university were underperforming academically? That sounds like a research question. <laughs> at the time, I wasn't thinking of it as, as research. I wasn't doing a PhD. I was just, I wanted to know if this was the truth or not. And when I was able to analyze the data and, and kind of see those results, it was clear it wasn't. And I also knew that that would be powerful, that I could use that to talk to people in positions of power and say, actually, our premise might be wrong here. I'm not trying to do myself out of a job, but it's not, we're not focused on the, right, on the right things here. So that helped for people to kind of start to question with me. Then by working with the students and putting the students in contact with other people, it also, combined with that evidence, started to break people's um, 
pre preconceived notions of what a low socioeconomic student, you know, was at, at this particular university. So sometimes you need those combinations of, of uh, kind of multiple um, factors. And this is where evidence can be really informative. And this evidence worked in um, my favor in this sense. It proved what I thought it would um, show. I don't know why people didn't do it before, to be honest. Um, and so, then, what, yeah. then what happened, I guess, with all these conversations, all this sort of stuff happening, and it's a continuation of stuff you were doing earlier, but then did it start to consolidate into some sort of project or a something? Yes, it, it, it was a messy process, to be honest, Mark. Like, in retrospect, it can all sound like it was neat and planned out, but none of it was kind of neat and, and planned out. Um, and maybe that was just my kind of Hurricane Katrina mentality. I just kind of went where the opportunities were, what the conversations were. But what it did culminate into is um, my sense that I really wanted to focus on learner-teacher interactions and relationships. I could see that in the university, classes were so big. There were students who tell me, there's not one teacher here who knows my name. I, I've never had a conversation with an academic you know, I go into the class, it's a transaction, I do what I'm supposed to do, and I leave and I walk out. And so I really wanted to think, how could we have those types of learning interactions? Now, there's some students who had that in extracurricular activities, but I wanted to think, how can we bring students into making classroom decisions with the teacher um, in a way that makes them feel more kind of seen and heard and have ownership of their learning? Uh, and so that's been a long process, and it will continue to be a long journey for the reason that it really is calling into question our just taken for granted assumptions about what a teacher is supposed to do and what a university student is is supposed to do. So what are, what are what like conventionally or traditionally or in the past what what's been the done thing? What are those roles? Sure. Um, just for for people that maybe aren't familiar with the what goes on in a university it's kind of college hijinks or hanging out on the in the quadrangle or yeah, you know like what, what you see in tv is a professor down the front espousing greatness and then students out having parties <laughs> if you watch movies where <laughs> universes are um, there's very little learning happening um, so normally what would happen is a teacher would decide what content's going to be taught the teacher is going to decide how are you going to take an exam the students to demonstrate that the timetable is going to be set and the student's job is to show up, to listen to the directions, to hear the content and to go out and learn it and to come back and prove that they've learned it. Um, in the, so far, so good. Yeah. So that's the typical sort of way that that happens. Um, but if we shake that up a bit, why can't students, what could students bring to the conversations about how to design the course? about what assessment would be more effective in, in that process. What is it that students could bring to actually helping to create curricular materials? So I'll give you a very tangible example. I've never taught online before. This year is the first time I had to teach online. I was nervous, but I was able to just like, look, I don't know, I'm going to have to learn. And I worked with some undergraduate students in different disciplines, and we, they talked to, me about, talked to me about their experiences of learning online in the first semester. And then we talked about what would really engage the students? What could we do that could actively keep them involved in an online environment where we're never gonna see each other on campus? Um, what are the ways that we keep students motivated? So together, we can, they helped me design assessment questions. They, helped, they made 
weekly um, videos that introduce students to the topics because they thought it might be more comfortable for students to see students talking about the topic instead of me just telling them what the topic was. One of the students had a great idea to make um, a class gift where all students contribute resources and then we have a class gift. And my initial reaction is like, no, nobody's going to want to do that. Then I thought about it. I shouldn't have dismissed it so quickly. Um, and the students really appreciate it. We have a class gift now where we share resources. So it's just as simple as um, invite me realizing students should be in that space of helping to design courses and classes, which is normally a space that's only reserved for, for teaching staff. And that's just one example of the ways that students and staff are working together to think differently about um, teaching and learning. And I'll close on this, Mark. Increasingly, we're finding that students are talked about as customers. Um, and I understand that. Students <laughs> are paying more money for, for university. Yes. And when you put students in a position of being a customer, then it makes the teacher a service provider. And that does something to that relationship. And so I guess it's just about saying, look, yes, university costs more money. It feels more like a business. It's a huge investment for, for students to make. But at the same time, to have those types of learning relationships that we need to have, it can't just be a customer service provider relationship. We need to see students as partners able to share responsibilities um, in the learning and teaching process. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So alongside all of this kind of practical work that I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of, of research too. And this probably won't surprise you. The research I've been doing is actually with students, even undergraduate students, um, to really understand if it's similar to the other story. I wanted to understand the empirical evidence base for students and staff kind of collaborating and working together as partners in learning and teaching. So with a group of students from my university um, and three universities overseas, we conducted this massive international literature review. Um, we searched hundreds of, of papers over a five-year period, and together we synthesized and analyzed what's the evidence? Is there strong evidence that students and staff working in these ways to enhance teaching and learning or education, students being more actively involved, um, was there evidence that this, there are beneficial outcomes? What we found is there were numerous beneficial outcomes. Students um, involved in this type of work reported actually learning a lot more about the content knowledge. So there was a learning factor within it. But actually on top of that, they also learned how to be more empathetic, how to listen to other people. And in this case, they became students more empathetic of academics. I just thought they were like these kind of heroes and experts and you couldn't talk to them. They're just real people. Uh, so this sense of kind of getting empathy, I think is really important right now, particularly considering um, the state of the world. We need more empathy. We need to be able to listen um, to other people. And other things that came out of it were students also talking about feeling more a sense of belonging. Now, Right now in higher education, that's a very big thing universities are worried about. Do students feel like they belong here? Because they know when students feel like they belong, they're more likely to stay and complete their degrees. So the sense of I feel connected now to a community, I know people that I didn't know before. Another thing we found was confidence for both students and staff. 
there was a sense of increased confidence of myself as a teacher and also as, as a learner. So the point is, through the research, lots of really, really beneficial outcomes. And what was really fascinating about that project, we published several papers, students and staff working together, um, was that process of writing, we also started to question the dominant form of, of research publication. How could we actually communicate in other ways other than just a research paper that so few people would read? Um, so this led into a line of work with some of those colleagues, um, writing a book actually about teaching and learning and different ways to write about teaching and learning so that they could reach a broader audience, but also so that students could have a more legitimate voice in academic scholarship. So what were ways that students can actually contribute to academic literature about students and bring their own voices in, in that process? Along with that, um, we've been able to grow a, um, a significant community of practitioners and students and academics really trying to do this work and we're learning together. There are many different practices that people have taken. Um, we come together once a year. This year who, we came together virtually. Who's the we? Like, is this an international thing or is it an Australian thing? Or like, what, what's going well, on? We, yes. So it really started as um, an Australian kind of um, community of practitioners and students. However, it has grown um, and we have international links. We've grown into kind of Asian countries, New Zealand. And part of the reason for that is there's just so much interest in people wanting to understand how do I do this and how can I find a community, other people to talk to that can help me and help me to feel more confident in thinking about teaching and learning in a, in a different way. That, um, to be, it, it seems so kind of um, accepted now. But the first time that we held an event, so I had a national fellowship and I've got a great group of colleagues and students around me and we held an event and we had about half the people there were students and half the people were staff to talk about teaching and learning. And at the time that was just seen as such an unusual thing to do because students aren't in the conversation about teaching and learning. And so we're watching this dynamic of students and staff thinking together and talking together about, well, what are better ways that, that we could be doing this? And now six years later, it's just, um, it's, it's become such a more commonly accepted practice to say students should be actively involved in these conversations that are happening about teaching and learning. So it's been really, um, I don't know if rewarding is the right word, um, but I can see the tangible difference in ways that students are now included in conversations that five or six years ago, they, they weren't even a part of. Maybe they'd get a survey to answer about what they think. So what sort of, like, are there projects going on around Australia and internationally, like, that are where students are kind of embedded into, into the processes, like, in a formal way? So there, we've definitely seen a growth of, of programs around this, both in Australia and overseas. Um, a colleague of mine, McKeeley, has a collection of over 100 case studies of programs where students and staff are working together in, in different ways. One of the programs um, I really appreciate uh, is at, at Bryn Mawr um, College in the United States, and it's been going for over 10 years. It's where students actually become consultants working with staff. They're sort of like the peer observer for the staff where they go in 
and they observe the, the um, teacher, and then the student and the teacher have conversations about what they see and, and how that's going. So that pedagogical consultant model is um, one of the more long-standing ones, but now we're seeing those types of programs um, in Canada, in the UK, the Netherlands, Denmark, Australia, New Zealand, and I've got a research student um, just collected data this week from students in China talking about their experiences of as students working with staff to help make the curriculum better. So it's fascinating to see how these practices are just um, happening across the globe. And finally, I'll say um, I was earlier in the week on the phone with a colleague in Colombia and she is adopting her kind of students as partners program at this university in Colombia to help support academics moving into online teaching. Yeah, what, so, um, yeah. what one of the one of the ideas that comes to mind is um, without without being too kind of negative, but is there opposition to this sort of approach, or it's generally oh no, it's it's kind of like opening up new ways, and it's not a, a kind of uh, it's an optional thing, it's not kind of mandated across the campus type thing. But I mean, I, surely yeah. there must be a dubious kind of. A group of people that uh, you know, and and that can be get, get quite complex. I would imagine linked to trust, or what would they know, or how can we rely on people that have had little or no experience, or a whole range of things. So, what what have you observed? Yeah, um, I think because of my kind of critical nature, anyway, and I like to question things and look at it from multiple directions. I've definitely had so many conversations with colleagues. Um, especially in the early days, who thought it was an absolute terrible idea for lots of legitimate reasons, right? What do students know about learning? What if I can't do what the students want me to do? Um, who gets to make the, the final decision there? People are so busy. You're just complicating the ways that things are already um, working. So lots of, I thought, really legitimate concerns that people were raising that could have been seen as resistance um, to, to the idea. And a lot of that was just a misunderstanding of, of what the idea was. Some people have interpreted this as we should just do what students say, that the students really are the customer and we just need to listen. And if a student argues something and says, look, I just, I think you should just let us all pick our own it's, grades. It's, it's not what we're talking about. That's hilarious and, and highly disturbing at the same time. Uh, so it, a lot of it was explaining it. Um, and I do think we need to really continue to think carefully and critically about this because the idea of partnership is that it's kind of a, a mutual benefit and there's a reciprocity and you recognize the contributions that different people have to bring based on what they can contribute. This is not about saying, ah, students can replace teachers. Uh, no, <laughs> that's not at all what this is about. It's about acknowledging that students have contributions they can make to educational practices and endeavors. So I do think we need to keep our eye on that and keep asking really critical and important questions. And I'll finally say, I don't think you can mandate partnership. So we can have programs and you can have ways that students can, can be involved. You can bring it into the classroom, but you can't tell people to be partners because that's a relational aspect where people need to bring those types of values and they need to negotiate that together. So we can have programs where students and staff have the opportunity to work together. And we hope it is in a way that students and staff both feel like they're contributing to what's happening. Um, but it's the same thing, Mark. I mean, we meet people all the time. You can't go to them and say, okay, you two are going to be friends. Be friends now. Um, 
people have to want to listen and have that dialogue and, and find some common ground. Uh, we're surrounded by we're up. surrounded by electronic uh, uh, electronic things. <laughs> that's well, you know what? My electronic devices um, sometimes they're smart and they tell me I should stop talking. Well, um, we've we've got um, just a few minutes left. Um, I think what, have people like students mainly, but also the staff. Like, have these collaborations led to uh, research output, that type of thing, you know, if they kind of, is the cycle being completed in to such a degree because of time and because of, you know, consistent, um, you know, focus and that kind of thing. And then I guess if so, what sort of, uh, support do people need, you know, like to students, surely the students are still learning how to articulate, communicate to audiences. And I know there's a certain, um, What's that word? Kind of like uh, the kind of parameters and requirements of academic writing is needed. You know, you can't just kind of. There's different types of writing, different different uh, forms. So, uh, yeah. So, what's happening in that space? Through the through the process of students and staff kind of collaborating and working together, I've seen uh, a phenomenal amount of. Um, outputs, you might say, or products. In some cases, you see students and staff publishing together and really contributing new knowledge around um, teaching and learning in a higher like, education. Like publishing a research article but in a, so in a journal. Publishing a research article. Um, I've seen students and staff and some of the top, you might say, like the highest sort of journals. We see students and staff um, publishing and including some of my own work. At the same time, I've also seen a shift in thinking that says, how do we find another way for students to be able to contribute to academic conversations? It's not necessarily a research article. So we see students contributing to blog posts, for example, writing in professional newsletter um, societies. Another thing I've seen a lot of now too is it's very common for students, undergraduate students and staff, to present together at conferences so not only are they just writing something, but they're in the, the conversation and they're becoming more members of, of these communities. Our um, Deputy Vice Chancellor Academic co-presented with uh, a student at Universities Australia conference a few years ago. Stuff like that in some senses is um, becoming more commonplace, different ways to give students a voice in um, different networks. So we um, see definitely, I see a lot of um, more publications. With some colleagues, we've actually started um, a journal and the journal has student co-editors and staff co-editors and we work together. We have student reviewers and staff reviewers. Um, and even in that process, we've learned so much about um, our assumptions about who knows how to do academic writing and so again all of these are kind of questioning assumptions um what does about that mean what students can contribute uh, for example um, i was so with one of my student co-editors we were recently reviewing a paper and it was written by a staff member and the staff member it needed a lot of work and so the student's like i can't believe i'm sitting here giving feedback to a professor about how they need to write their paper better um and that the kind of mistakes that they were making. Um, so in that, even just challenging, you know, those kinds of assumptions that students won't be able to do academic writing and that staff can do academic writing really well. 
Um, so we're seeing, but, and that's one aspect of it. But do you know what I really like seeing, Mark, is I really like seeing how students have actually created curriculum materials and that students are designing assessment tasks for other students. And then the feedback from students in the class is one, they're so surprised that other students have, have done that work and they find it really engaging and relevant. And in the class, it helps students to feel like, wow, students can really contribute here in different ways. So for me at all, um, the work I'm gonna keep doing and what keeps me kind of motivated and inspired is one, I really do um, enjoy working with students, but it's also that mindset that we're always learning. And if we can all just kind of come back and think, I don't know everything, I'm curious, I need to find out about other people and their experiences to think about um, how we do education better, but we could use it in, in politics, for example. Um, so it's just that notion and coming back to that mindset of thinking, I can learn with anyone if I'm willing to learn with, with anyone. What do I could ask? What does what's the point of all this? Like, where are we heading with all this? Or what's you know, why, <laughs> right? Like, is this just a fun, you know, Kelly activity that I'm really enjoying doing and other people like doing it too, right? Is that what this is all about? For me, it's much deeper than that. Um, higher education should be more than just teaching students skills and giving them knowledge. I think a higher education also has to prepare students for being active and informed citizens. I think right now more than ever, we absolutely need that. And partnership reminds us to think about our values and what matters to us and how we interact with other people and how we think about interacting with people across a power distance because there is a big power distance between students and staff. And higher education should be teaching people how to navigate relationships and interactions with other people, how to listen and gain empathy and be curious and then work together to achieve something that matters to us. There's so much divisiveness right now um, in the world. There's so much polarization and people don't even seem capable of listening to someone else's point of view. So I really do think we need to bring these values back into higher education. And if we think of each other as partners and we practice listening and dialogue and deciding together and working together and navigating conflict together, that's going to help contribute to the type of society um, I hope we will transform back into very soon. In this episode, I chatted with Kelly Matthews, a teacher and academic researcher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to some of Kelly's Students as Partners research articles, as well as a 400-page co-authored publication, which is free and open access, called Writing About Learning and Teaching in Higher Education, Creating and Contributing to scholarly conversations across a range of genres. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.